We both like to win. We both detested getting beat. The love affairs have had plenty because we've been with some tremendous football clubs. There was nothing else at all in the whole world but football. Welcome to Merseyside Legends, the tales and tapes with John Keith. On Friday, July the 12th, 1974, the impossible happened. Bill Shankly announced at a press conference that he was quitting as Liverpool manager. The instant reaction was one of utter disbelief. How, people asked, could this man, who transformed Liverpool FC since he breezed across the Pennines, walk away from Anfield, the place he gave as his home address during the club's long continental campaigning. After the initial shock of Shankly's decision came another reaction, that Liverpool would never replace him, the club would suffer. Nobody, according to a huge section of pundits and public, could follow the unique Shankly. They were, of course, totally wrong. Without a doubt, the most knowledgeable footballing person I've ever come across. He's probably the greatest day that I will to anyone in football. I thought that he could not do what Bill Shankly done. He proved me wrong, and he's proved a lot of other people wrong. The man who would not only succeed him, but take the club to unprecedented heights, was already at Anfield. He'd been there for more than 20 years, prior to Shankly's arrival, having signed as a 20-year-old wing half on May the 8th, 1939. His name was Bob Paisley, a native like Shankly of a mining community, hailing from the County Durham town of hetton le hole The imminent Second World War, in which he served in the army as a so-called desert rat, delayed Paisley's league debut until the 1946-47 season. Two months before that game, Bob had become a married man. He and Jesse tying the knot at All Souls Church, Springwood, Liverpool, after they'd met in bizarre circumstances on a train, as Jesse recalled. I was teaching at McGull at the time, and it was half-term holiday, and I was going with my friend to London to some relatives of hers for the half-term holiday. We went on the midnight train on a Saturday night and this soldier got in the compartment, threw his greatcoat on my sandwiches, because there wasn't so much service on the train in those days, uh, threw his greatcoat on my sandwiches and sat by me and I looked at him, not very pleased, and he apologised and that. We got talking, and that was it. Bob's love of football had been evident as a small boy. In the northeast, on New Year's Day, the last New Year in Wales, and uh, my first recollection of the, of the New Year was uh, as the bells were chiming the, in the New Year in, the old year out, uh, I used to kick a football because this was something they said, if you did it through the old year and into the new year, you'd do that all your life. And I used to do this. It's not done bad. At schoolboy level, uh, 
we won the three years I could play from 11 to 14 and in the three years we won 17 trophies and then I went to play with the junior side the Hedden juniors and I played two years there and then I went to Bishop Auckland and they won the treble for the first time ever and then I signed for Liverpool and uh, really in uh, the war started soon after I signed on in '39, and then uh, the first year, when the when the war finished in '46-7, of course Liverpool won the championship. So I don't know whether it was ability or what, but I must have been a lucky mascot. Lucky mascot indeed, with a league title medal at the end of his debut season to launch a playing career that ended in 1954 just as Liverpool were relegated to the second tier of English football. During his playing career, Bob linked up with one of the greatest, if not the greatest, players ever to wear the Anfield jersey, the peerless Billy Little, man of many roles and master of them all. Here's Billy talking about Bob. He was a hard tackling player and he was one of the first uh, fellas that uh, had the, the long ball throwing. He, he could throw it from the, the touch line to the near post. And uh, we, we used to work things out that way. Bob was a, a, an honest grafter. Uh, he was a, a great man to have on your side because he, he never gave up. He was, he was a hard tackler but despite his size. In those days, I mean, the, the tackling was hard and uh, we, we um, used the shoulder charge that you never see nowadays. When Laurie Hughes was playing centre-half and Bob was left-half, Bob used to do all the tackling and Laurie picked up all the balls as the, he made the other fella move to come in the way and Laurie stepped in and in that way got the ball. And this is how Bob remembered Little and playing in that 1947 team. Billy Little was just... Lost and then is a real international player and uh, it, after the war it was recognised then he'd played one or two games during the war play when I was fighting for him <laughs> they signed uh, Cyril Sidlow on and then uh, the fullbacks Jim Harley was was there then Ray Lambert with, was just coming on this international scene um, with Wales and uh, Eddie Spicer and uh, Bill Jones and Laurie Hughes Laurie had uh, got in during the war, he was a little bit younger than the other lads, and uh, he'd made his back in the war, and uh, he was coming good, and he was a bit of a character, Laurie. I knew a little bit, a bit about the players and the routine and uh, everything, and I think the game's about uh, one of understanding, both from a playing point of view and, and the manager's point of view. And uh, the, the, the perfect man's never been born, and we've all got our weaknesses, and, and players have the weaknesses. And uh, it's on this theme that I tried to select sides and pick players to go in my side. And the type of thing I was as a player, or the type of thing I couldn't do as a player, I think that was the first foremost in my mind when I went into the, the coaching training side, whatever you think. I thought, well, where did you go adrift in your game? And uh, possibly I won the ball as much as anybody, but uh, I didn't always give it away correctly. And this is one thing that I 
try to instill in other people. And I think this is one of the failings of uh, great professional players uh, that had the day, and, and all due respect to uh, Rash Carter and uh, Tommy Lawton and uh, many more that they never could go off their own skills. And I think this is where some of the, the great players suffered because they would never come off the bracket they were at. Bob's biggest disappointment as a player came in 1950. Liverpool met Everton in the FA Cup semi-final at Manchester City's former ground of Main Road. It was the day Freebooter won the Grand National and Bob delivered a Freebooter of his own, sending a shot past Everton goalkeeper George Burnett to open the scoring. Little added another goal for a 2-0 win to secure a cup final clash with Arsenal. But Little would endure a painful Wembley experience, physically targeted and clattered by Arsenal's Alex Forbes as Liverpool lost 2-0. Their last FA Cup final appearance for 15 years until Shankly's Liverpool won it for the first time in 1965. Alas for Bob, he was left out of the cup final team, not by manager George Kay, but amazingly by the directors who picked the team in those days. It was a bitter personal blow to Bob, who confided to his centre forward teammate Albert Stubbins how he felt. Probably was the most disappointing thing that ever happened to me in, 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 as a player. And uh, now, again, like the army and, and character-wise, it stood me in good stead because when I say I know about people, it doesn't when I've had to leave the mountain. And, uh, I honestly believe they, they knew that I was disappointed uh, uh, too. And I know what it, that type of disappointment is. And, uh, I toyed with leaving and this and that, and one or two newspapers wanted to, you know, to put an article in for a few bob and that. They did it. It was just on the way then, and at the end of the day, I just thought and said, well, I might go to another club and get and we get the final next year and get left out again. So <laughs> that would have been doubly disappointing. When Bob hung up his boots in 1954, he pondered what to do in life. One thought he had was to return to the northeast and become a bricklayer, at which he'd served an apprenticeship in his younger days. Other options, which he revealed to Albert Stubbins, were to run a newsagent or open a fruit and veg business. Fortunately for English football in general, and Liverpool in particular, he received an offer from club director Thomas Valentine Williams, a cotton broker, to join the club's backroom staff and take over the reserves. It also meant that Bob had the scope to further his knowledge of physiotherapy, which he'd studied through a correspondence course. He became a renowned physio, the ideal assistant to Shankly, who was to injuries and treatment what Dracula was to the sign of the cross. Players would say quite openly that if they were injured, as far as Shanks was concerned, they were in the Bastards Club. So Bob's skill at diagnosis and treatment of injuries was a heaven-sent ingredient 
in his relationship with Shanks, who retained him and all the backroom staff when he became manager. When Bennett was here, Bob Taser was here, Joe Taken was here, Albert Shelley was here, and I had a, tra a, a, a talk with the, the training staff, that was the training staff then. And I said that normally when a manager goes to a club, he takes his own men, because he's better the devil you know than the devil you don't know. In other words, he, he, he may get stabbed in the back. And I got a hold of these men who I'd known personally, and I had a talk with them, and I said, now normally a manager, and I could have shifted them all out, because the record wasn't very good. I said, but I said, I'm not going to do that. I said, because I've got some ideas of training and coaching and playing. I says, and I'll lay down the plans. I says, and we'll all chip in and we'll all work together. And I says, and maybe one day we'll get the players we need. And that happened. We, the plans were laid down. We're all in it. We got the players we wanted. And we went from strength to strength. Here's Liverpool's former chief executive, Peter Robinson, talking about how that medical knowledge was invaluable. Because of that knowledge, um, he, that, he always uh, would, uh, when he was forming opinion, take into account how a chap ran on that. That came from, I think, from um, the, the period he spent, spent on the medical side. Shankly shocked the football world and beyond by leaving Liverpool in the summer of 1974. I'd worked uh, with Bob Paisley. Ruben Bennett, Joe Fagan, and Ryan Moran, and they were there before it, yeah. So I'd worked with all of these men, and uh, all of us were all there. And as I told you, we had a meeting, and I said, I, I, I don't want to bring you men. Uh, you keep, you stay here. So I elevated them all, you see. We changed it around, you see. So I also laid the foundations for another folks' future. That instead of disrupting the place and bringing a new man in, and upsetting the whole apple cart, uh, they had a team, they had money, they had a ground, everything. And then instead of disrupting all that, it was just a, a shuffle up. And then Joe Figgins shuffled up as well. Ronnie Moran shuffled up. And young uh, Roy Evans came into the pack and all. And Tom Saunders was here then, looking after the youth. So that the whole thing was all ready. And it didn't need to go outside and get a manager. The club turned straight away to offer the job to Bob. There was, though, one huge problem. He turned it down, not once, but several times. He did an amazing job for a man that was very reluctant to take the position. Obviously, he gave a lifetime of service to, uh, to Liverpool in, in many different positions, uh, but he was very uh, reluctant to take the position of manager. But then, having taken it, he, um, uh, he led the club, uh, under his managership, the club um, became the, uh, well, it achieved the um, uh, most outstanding period of any um, British club in its history. He had um, he had a great depth of knowledge of football, didn't he? We had a frightful job to persuade him to, uh, to, to take. He just didn't want it. He was happy as a number two. Didn't really want, ever want to be the number one. But emphasising that impatience for success is not just a 21st century reality, the end of Bob's first season in charge, the snipers were already loading their ammunition with letters in the local and much-missed football pink paper questioning whether he was the right man. I really must apologise to Bob Paisley um, and his family. I thought that he could not do what Bill Shankly done and he obviously done better 
I've got to say that. He proved me wrong, and he's proved a lot of other people wrong in life and everything, every other way. Because he was so ordinary and so down to earth, it's just unbelievable. The snipers, though, were soon silenced as a cascade of silverware descended on Anfield. Beginning with a league title and UEFA Cup double the following season of 1975-76, the start of Bob's amazing haul of 19 trophies in nine seasons. Sooners lay back towards David Johnson with a left-footed shot. Oh, that'll do. And Liverpool now going to the championship in style. An absolute cracker from David Johnson. And Liverpool go on from strength to strength. And this is without doubt the best side in the country. Bob's remarkable haul of silverware comprised six league titles, three European Cup triumphs, three League Cups, a UEFA Cup, a European Super Cup and five charity shields. During his reign, Liverpool also set an all-time record of 85 home games unbeaten in all competitions, including 63 in the league. He is among the managerial elite to have won the European Cup stroke Champions League three or more times. Bob's final league title was secured in 1982-83 and in the last home game of that season against Aston Villa, the Anfield crowd saluted him when he was presented with the championship trophy. Here's Radio City recording that memorable moment. All standing over the ball. The referee says the back, the required distance. Here comes Alan Kennedy, races over the ball. Dalglish, oh yes, that's the way to do it. Kenny Dalglish spends one round the wall. He runs over to his manager, Bob his arm in the air and that swerve, the wicked swerve from Kenny Dalglish gives Liverpool the goal they were looking for. Dalglish squared as soon as five. Oh, say, what a marvellous strike by the Liverpool skipper and Kenny Dalglish who's been hat-trick hunting himself for a few minutes just tees up the fifth goal for Graham Souness, who hits a very deliberate and venomous strike past Peter Fox into that cop goal and Liverpool disappointed and downhearted in Lodge three days ago are now celebrating surely another championship. Just listen to the reception that the Anfield faithfuls give to the Liverpool team. Champions of 1983 and led out by their manager Bob Paisley. And listen to this reception. The League Championship trophy will be presented by the president of the Football League, Mr Jack Dunnett, to the Liverpool skipper, Graham Souness, who shakes hands with his own chairman, John Smith, and now takes it from Mr Dunnett. And Bob Paisley's the man who holds it aloft. And turns round through 360 degrees to show that title trophy to the whole of the Anfield Stadium. 48,000 crammed into Anfield last season to see the Reds take the trophy after a 3-1 home win over Spurs. And there's over 40,000 in here again to see the Reds pick up their 14th and record-breaking championship win. The team just waiting to be presented to Mr Dunnett. And Liverpool manager Bob Paisley now takes that trophy, the league championship trophy, over to the cop and holds it aloft. He's walking round in his raincoat and Bob Paisley a fitting climax on his last league match here as manager of Liverpool Football Club.
Two months earlier, there'd been a heartwarming scene at Wembley after Liverpool's 2-1 extra-time League Cup final win over Manchester United, when Bob Paisley had the chance to exercise the ghost of Wembley 1950. As described by Radio City's Clive Tilsley and Liverpool legend Ian St. John. The Liverpool lads would like Bob to go up the steps. Uh, this may be the first time this has ever happened, surely. He's going to. Bob Paisley is going to lead Liverpool up the steps. What a marvellous gesture. Bob Paisley, for the first time in his career, will climb the Wembley steps. Now, back in the 1950s, he scored an FA Cup semi-final winner for Liverpool against Everton and was dropped for the final, denied the chance to play in a major Wembley showpiece. But now he leads his troops up the steps to receive the Football League Milk Cup. Graham soon as follows, but it's Bob Paisley who shakes hands with Jim Hodges of the National Dairy Council who will present the cup and shakes hands with his chairman, John Smith. And Bob Paisley in his retirement season holds it off the Milk Cup. For the moment belongs to the most successful manager in the history of British football, Bob Paisley. Bob Paisley was an ordinary man of extraordinary achievement. His humility was unaltered by his dazzling success. I had the privilege of writing his official biography with the wonderful help of his family. And as the words were hitting the page, I often had to stop to pinch myself to make sure they were true, even though I'd witnessed and reported on the events being described. I hope you've enjoyed this story of Bob Paisley's life and career. In our second podcast about the great man, we'll bring the views of many of his players and some of the unforgettable moments of Paisley's Liverpool. Thank you for listening.